Today on Public Interest Podcast, former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley joins us to offer a word on the legacy of his years in public service. If I am to have a legacy, I hope that is said of me after I'm gone that I was a good person and I did my best to serve others with honesty, with integrity, and, and, and courage where necessary. Though, adds O'Malley, much of his legislative history can be attributed to serendipity. But sometimes the more defining moments are not the ones you bring upon yourself. They're the ones that you step up to. And, I, and whenever I did that, it was, it, was, uh, it was motivated by what I felt was in the best interest of my people, not by what I thought might poll well four years from now in a presidential race. Stay with us, and we'll be right back with the full interview with former Maryland governor and U.S. presidential candidate Martin O'Malley. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We're here today with Martin O'Malley, the 61st governor of Maryland from 2007 to 2015, a Democrat, uh, the 47th mayor of Baltimore City from 99 to 2007, and a former Baltimore City Council member, as well as a former 2016 Democratic candidate for President of the United States of America. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jordan. Good to be with you. Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing and w- or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? What have I ever done? Well, I, was, I felt a calling very early on in, in my life to be involved in politics. I suppose I was very fortunate to have been raised in a family where we were taught around the dinner table that the only thing wrong with politics is not enough good people get involved. And um, so uh, I had thought that you know working for other candidates and working behind the scenes I got very involved when I was in college for a long shot presidential campaign of a uh, Colorado US senator named Gary Hart and um, uh, it was only after that experience and after it ended with a lot of heartbreak that I decided I wanted to run myself one day and um, so I've, I've been fortunate. I was able to I was able to serve on the Baltimore City Council. Uh, uh, was able to uh, thought I was getting out of politics, and then when no one who could do what needed to be done was willing to run to do it, mm-hmm. I ran for mayor and put our city on a path over the next ten years for the biggest crime reduction of any major city in America, and we saved a lot of lives there. And also as as governor, and I can't think of a a way I could have been more impactful with my particular set of of talents uh, in a positive way to more people than to have been able to um, uh, do what I did, not only on public safety, but also public schools, affordable college, health of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, 
So uh, those are the things I've done in public service, and I continue to travel around the country now helping good Democrats who are running to win back their states in order to save our country. And I think you're going to see uh, that we field a lot of candidates all across the country, um, and perhaps for offices that in the past Democratic candidates did not contest. So uh, there's a big change coming. So what motivates you to keep going? And perhaps we might even start at the very beginning. Uh, When you first ran for the Maryland State Senate in Baltimore City, uh, you lost by 44 votes, um, and, and, and in fact, you won on election night, and you only lost later by absentee ballots. How did you overcome that loss to re-engage in politics and, and, and have multiple successful campaigns subsequent to that initial loss? And, you know, that ties in today to how you are remaining involved in electoral politics in the United States or across the country, despite having suffered defeat in 2016. Man, you're going into ancient history. Yeah, that was a great race. I was 27 years old. My girlfriend at the time, now my wife, said that the incumbent would beat me like a drum. She said, you have no idea what's coming. The number of blue signs that will be arrayed against you. I said, I think I can take him. So I knocked on a lot of doors, and you're no stranger to that. I mean, ultimately, politics comes down to one person talking to another person. So I I quit my job, and I was in the state's attorney's office for a couple of years. I was a prosecutor in the district court. The funny thing about that race is, um, you know, I fully thought I would win from the moment I announced until the end. I had a real clear concept of, of, of how the campaign would unfold, what I needed to do. In Why order. did you think you could be an incumbent? Uh, I knew something a lot of other people didn't know, and that was that while a lot of people recognized the name because his father had been in office ahead of him. A dynasty in Baltimore, that's powerful. Yeah, I also knew that, uh, I also knew that he was at a point in his own political service, and we've since become friends, even though that was a you know, bare-knuckled brawl. I knew at that time that he had the worst attendance record of any senator in the state Senate, and I knew that if people knew that, they would think much differently mm-hmm. about whether or not to just pull for the familiar name. And so I thought I could outwork him, and uh, I I knew that he was not terribly active, uh, hadn't been seriously challenged in a long time. So, But I started to say, the funny thing about that race is that while I thought I would win, mm-hmm. uh, my friends never thought I'd really come close. Were they out there knocking for you anyway? Yeah. And um, so when that night when I walked into the headquarters mm-hmm. and everybody was euphoric and ecstatic and clapping when I walked in the door, I turned to my friend Michael Enright, who I'd known since high school, and I said, "Do they not know that we're actually that we're actually down on the machines?" The newspaper said I was ahead, mm-hmm. but we knew I was actually down by twenty. And Michael says, "Oh yeah, they know you're trailing, but they never thought you'd come this close to begin <laughs> with." So as many of those friends after I lost that said to me the next year when a city council seat became uh, open on the on the city council. They said, you, you've, you've already met half your district or more. This before they did the redistricting to it. And they told me city council can, is also public service, and you could do a good job there, and you, you need never, to run for this. You never thought about running in Bethesda, where you're originally from, returning no, to Montgomery County? Not really. You know, once I moved to Baltimore in law school, I stayed. I became very – Baltimore is a, 
I worked on Barbara Mikulski's campaign while I was in law school. I went there for law school. And um, uh, so Baltimore such a, uh, uh, I don't know, welcoming, small, familiar place in many ways that you feel much more at home there after a brief period of time than I ever felt at home, believe it or not, growing up in the Washington area. I mean, I could walk down K Street right now and not be recognized. I walk down, you know, Charles Street in Baltimore and I see people I've known for 40 years. But you know what? That was true after just being up there for a year of law school. Hmm. I could have said the same thing, that, that I... That I just came to know far more people in Baltimore. So no, I, did, I never, never really bar, thought about coming coming back. Yeah. Uh, Baltimore's home, and Baltimore's been home since law school and since doing that Mikulski campaign. That was really an immersion for me. I was the field director of her very first successful U.S. Senate campaign in 1986 and got to know the place very well. So anyway, back to the story. Had I overcome that loss? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Uh, uh, I drove myself mad staring at the ceiling, waking up in the morning and, and saying 43. It was actually 43 votes, and as my little brother likes to remind me, half of 43 is 22. So you can think of it as 22, Martin. However, whether 43, 44, or 22 was maddening. It boiled down to less than one vote per precinct uh, in terms of the difference. Uh, so, uh, but hey, man, life moves on, and in hindsight, and really only with a little bit of hindsight, I've come to understand that that loss was the best thing that ever happened to me in politics. In other words, had I not lost that first race, I would not have been steered into municipal service, which at the time I thought I wouldn't have the patience or the energy for. But it turned out to be a place where, uh, in fact, uh, you know, I was able to do a lot of good. And um, I was probably better suited for municipal and city challenges than I was for being a backbench senator in the state house. Why do you say that? Uh, well, certainly, anyway, by the time I was at my most impactful years of service uh, as mayor, uh, Baltimore had become, for the first time, uh, the most violent, addicted, and abandoned city in America. And it really required uh, leadership um, that could bridge racial divides around the issue that divides us most painfully in this country, and that is around, you know, racial injustice, law enforcement, uh, criminal justice, and criminal injustice. There was a lot of skepticism when you ran for mayor that you could win because you're white, and it's predominantly an African-American city in Baltimore. Yeah, there was a lot of skepticism when I won that I couldn't govern because I was white. And, hey, look, man, I had that same sort of skepticism. I would wake up. When Kwaisi and Fume decided not to run for mayor, mm-hmm. I woke up uh, every morning uh, with this uncomfortable feeling that I needed to run. Uh, and if I did not run and win, that lots of people were going to die uh, needlessly. Because other cities had figured this out. Other cities like New York. You took this example from New York City. Yeah, from Comstat. And um, that's how most modern departments are run. Sadly, Baltimore's kind of forgotten the lessons learned, and we'll have to relearn them. But New York, Los Angeles, many other cities, even Chicago of late. uh, New York was really the forerunner in a new and better way of policing, performance-measured policing, using stuff that we think is 
you know, everyday technology today, geographic information hot systems, spotting. sort of hot spotting. I mean, but knowing real time where your citizens are being harmed or shot or rub, robbed Before or mugged. The uh, mayor, um, Schaefer, used to go around anecdotally in his car and point out potholes and write it in a little notepad, and that was kind of the technology for how to identify where city services should go. And, and yeah, then- and I did some of that too. I mean, there's no substitute for being out there with open open eyes and 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 the drive of the mayor that the mayor sees and the mayor knows, and and that was very important for keeping the consensus around policing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was never a week that went by when I wasn't at least a few times in very poor neighborhoods that were at the front lines of this drive to close down the open-air drug markets and to win back our our our, our most violent neighborhoods from the hands of, of violent drug gangs. So anyway, look, I started to say before, I woke up with the same baggage, skeptical that it, that I could win. And then I realized one day when I woke up that that was just a reverse type of way of saying that People that might vote for you couldn't be fair because of the color of their skin, or people that you might serve and and as a servant leader as their as their mayor couldn't be fair because of the color of their skin. So was it tough to gain their confidence? You know, the, the toughest thing was just relieving myself of that baggage, you know. And once I once I shed that baggage myself, then I was able to campaign with a clarity and govern with a clarity. And, I, and God sent very good people to help me uh, do what we needed to do as a city, among them the 10 Baltimore City police officers were God buried said. in the line of, of duty. Yeah, I believe, I mean, I'm Catholic, so I do believe that, yeah, we're all here to help each other work out our salvation. And I, I you know, the people that came to my aid uh, certainly brought with them the, you know the dignity that's in every individual. I mean, they made their own free choices. Uh, that's what human to, beings. That's what human beings do. But in the in the larger sense of things, yeah, I consider myself very blessed that you know I was able to uh, marry the woman I've made uh, married, and that the children that we've brought into this world uh, are of the the health and caliber they are. So, yeah, I, f- I believe that God walks with all of us. You just mentioned your wife. You're married to Katie Curran, who's a daughter of former Attorney General Joe Curran. Is there any point, has it ever been difficult trying to convince Katie that you got to run for office again? Was it difficult after you lost her Senate that you think you got it out of your system? Was it difficult to try to convince her to run for council or mayor, governor, or president of the United States, or to remain involved around the country as you are today in 2018, two years after your election closed down? Well... Well, sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, people sometimes people would say, in asking how Katie was doing, and you know, um, when I was serving as mayor or whatever. I mean, it was a lot. It's been a huge amount of work for her. This life of public service of a spouse. I mean, I think we underestimate just how how much of a, a joint commitment public service is. Uh, we see the candidates, we rarely see the candidates, husband or wife, but they they have to do a ton of work in the absence of, of a spouse who, you know, when you're married, you have to be out pretty much every night. Um, and um, so sometimes people said, well, being, since her father was in politics, she should understand. I said, that's the problem. She does. 
she was one of those little kids <laughs> that that didn't see enough of her father because he was in public service or late night hearings in Annapolis or out at community meetings. So she understands very well. Uh, but she's been uh, she's been a real patriot uh, through through all of this through through wins losses and and the longer excellence of the long service. You also mentioned. I just want to get back to this very quickly. You mentioned your Catholicism and your and your uh, your uh, belief in. in your, your um, religion. You can wanna, say it. Belief in God. Belief in God. I'd like to ask, do you, does, has God set forth a calling for you? What's the role of religion? What's, what's the importance of... You're, 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 you're a man spending your life in public service. Is there any... Was that set forward for you? Was there a path that you're trying to follow? What, what's, at the end of the day, why, why have you spent so much of your life trying to run for office and represent people and advance the public interest. Is there, what are your motivations? What's your philosophy on service? Well, okay, so you're getting at this whole big, this, um, this, this issue of discernment. And uh, I went to Gonzaga College High School uh, right here uh, down in the District of Columbia. And, you know, one of the, one of the central, one of the, one of the wisdoms that, uh, a Jesuit education seeks to impart on on men and women, young men and women, is that the, the is to listen for uh, and discern uh, the calling that's in your heart to use your talents to to their their fullest in whatever way um, in in the in the best way that you can. In other words. Uh, you know, it's always a it's always a choice. We have, I believe anyway, that we have free will. Nothing's preordained. It's not like it's not like uh, God sends us marching orders. But I do believe that each of us is is created by the Creator with certain individual and indispensable and needed talents. What has been your calling, Martin? I believe my calling has been public service. And uh, uh, there were times when I thought I had kind of run my course, and that perhaps that was. You know that was something I did out of a, some sort of wanderlust or spirit of adventure, uh, and then I found myself coming back to it. Uh, so, you know, to, at every stage in one's life, Jordan, you go through different periods of discernment, and uh, uh, and I pray, uh, I pray that I'll be able to be as much service as I can be to others for as long as I possibly can be. And and I'm open to uh, the many forms that that can take, uh, and, and you know, and it does take different forms at different stages in every person's life. Whether you're an artist or a lawyer or a doctor or what have you. Since we're on this topic of religion, I'd like to call up um, one of your many legislative achievements as governor. You uh, were able to pass through marriage equality. Um, and, uh, and and Maryland was uh, actually a state where Obergefell uh, got married at BWI Airport, which led to the Supreme Court case, which made marriage equality uh, possible around the United States. Um, a few days, two days prior to you, I believe, signing into law the marriage equality bill, you got a letter from an Archbishop of Baltimore saying that as a Catholic, you ought not to support this bill. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong about the dates, but I believe this is what transpired. Yeah, the timing was close. Yeah, well, I got a letter from the Archbishop of Baltimore when when news was published that I had intended to make this actually 
an administrative bill. We had tried in the past not to make it a partisan deal, mm-hmm. you know, and by saying this was one of the governor's bills, you pretty much put a marker down. And uh, But we had tried two other ways to pass it, and we had... And both times they had failed. And uh, our thinking was, look, the one way we haven't tried is for us to say, this is a governor's bill. It will be one of a handful of my priorities. And so that's what we decided to do. And when the archbishop got wind of it, he sent me a, he sent me a cease and desist letter and uh, uh, told me that he had an obligation to uh, advise me against committing a, a grave mortal sin, I suppose. <laughs> so wh- where I'm getting at right there is I'm wondering, and I don't know what your personal opinion is on the issue, um, and, and you're welcome to share it if you'd like, uh, especially back then. I'm sure I know what it is now. The question I'm looking to ask is, you had a personal identity. Uh, I, I know that uh, Vice President Joe Biden also has had similar issues with, I think, uh, abortion, um, where you made a certain decision that you thought was in the public interest that was right for all the people of Maryland over whom you governed, but then you may have held uh, a separate private belief. I'm not sure yeah, if you did. Yeah, it's, did you wrestle with any? Is that not not terribly? I mean, look. Let me share with you. Let me share with you my thinking here, mm-hmm. uh, and it's the thinking that I shared when I wrote back to the the Archbishop. I mean, I said, look, man, I would never ever, as a public official. Mm-hmm. Uh, ever tell you or any leader of any faith mm-hmm. in our state where we value very highly freedom of expression, freedom of worship, freedom of speech. I would never ever think to tell you how to define a sacrament within the meets and bounds of, of your church. Mm-hmm. I said, but my job is different. My job is to enforce the law and to do justice equally under the law. And while on this bridge between the sacred and the secular where we meet, we can agree on a lot of things, you know, covering more people with health care, uh, 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 sheltering the homeless, feeding the, the, the hungry, uh, educating all children regardless of, of their zip code or, or parents' income level. I said, on this one, we're going to disagree because when I identify in the law an injustice, mm-hmm. I have an obligation to try to change that. And I identi- and what I said to him was I have come to the conclusion that it is wrong, that it is unjust that the children of gay couples should have lesser legal protections than the children of heterosexual couples. And I said and I intend to change that. And uh, you know um, and that was kind of and that was my thought process. It, it, it's you know Thomas Aquinas uh, often wrote about the uh, proper use. I mean, w- was a Catholic theologian and political philosopher, and he wrote about the proper use of the coercive force of the state, mm-hmm. especially among a people of many different faiths. And uh, in essence, what he said was, unless there is an overwhelming agreement mm-hmm. on public morality mm-hmm. that a thing should be that the thing should be illegal, criminalized because it affects the good order, uh, that you should not use the coercive power of the state uh, uh, for that purpose, and that the better and more proper reflex is to individual conscience, individual choice, and uh, an equal application uh, of the law to all. 
So that's where I'm at on that, and it's actually the same reasoning that I applied on issues of choice. So on that topic somewhat of liberty that you spoke about, about ameliorating the coercive force of the state, you had very many accomplishments, progressive accomplishments as governor. Uh, you raised the minimum wage to $10.10 an hour. Um, I wanted to make it higher. <laughs> you, <laughs> That's all I could get at the time. You were able to pass with now Attorney General Brian Frosch, then Senator, uh, strict firearm regulations across the state. Both of those, um, I also would like to give for our listeners some context, which is before you assumed office, Governor Ehrlich was governor and, and he was a Republican. And after you left office, a Republican Governor Larry Hogan assumed the office. So you were kind of sandwiched between two Republicans, and you mentioned the idea of a, of a coercive state. And of course, Republicans uh, sometimes would say that uh, firearm regulations are actually the state being coercive and infringing upon their rights. And some Republicans would also say that raising a minimum wage imposes unfair restrictions on business. Some Republicans might say that. The question I have for you is given your interest in your inspiration by Aquinas and your and your your leadership over a state of Maryland that elected a Republican governor both before and after you, which is to say there are individuals in the state of Maryland who you represented who are of the Republican Party who may not have agreed with your progressive platform. How did you determine what was how did you set your moral compass? How did you determine what was right? Considering that you had to represent, you had to be true to yourself, you had to represent the progressive Democrats who elected you, but you also were governor of all those individuals who didn't vote for you and, and who voted for Republicans before and after you. How did you determine, uh, I guess, how to best represent a, a diverse state? Yeah, look, man, it wasn't a matter of kind of splitting the loaf between, you know, two extremes or looking at something as complex as the ecosystem of our <laughs> shared life, our, our politics, as if it's, you know, on some some line that runs from left to right. I mean, Ed Rendell gave me some great advice when I was first elected mayor. He said, surround yourself with the best people you can possibly find and make every decision as if you're not running for re-election again. So, look, the beliefs that have motivated me in public service, I think, are beliefs that are shared by people throughout the very diverse state, as you just mentioned, of, of Maryland. Democrats, Republicans, independents, people of all faiths, people who profess to have no faith. I mean, um, I think we all still believe in, in the dignity of every person. We believe in the common good that we share, and we understand that we're all in this together, that every life is important. And so I made decisions based on what I felt was best for the common good we share as a state, realizing my stewardship of that office mm -hmm. uh, was, was very temporary, as every person that's ever held it uh, has been temporary. So I didn't really do it on the polling. I recall, you know, you talk about representing, uh, representing all people. I, I, I was cognizant of that every, every day. I was... I won re-election with twice the margin against uh, Governor Ehrlich, who was, I think, more popular the day I beat him the first time than I was, and he remained fairly popular. Uh, but I beat him by twice the margin, even after a recession, and having to do a lot of tough and unpopular things on cuts and taxes in order to slay the dragon of uh, the structural deficit. Um, but upon re-election, 
there were still a lot of things left undone. Uh, some of them were threats to our common good, and some of them were, were things we, we needed to, to accomplish if we we're going to give our, make our kids winners in a changing economy. So among them, I mean, uh, uh, repealing the death penalty, that was still in limbo. Kind of had people on death row, had a, had a bill that the Court of Appeals said was unworkable, and yet I couldn't put together the votes yet and the consensus necessary to repeal it. There were things we needed to do on, on stormwater and, and stopping the, the pollution that comes from that into the Chesapeake Bay and through septic systems. Tough stuff to do. Uh, gas tax. There is not a more unpopular tax in all of the United States than telling any American anywhere that you want them to pay uh, even a few pennies more for a gallon of gas, and yet that's what keeps our bridges from falling into to rivers and keeps them in good repair. So I remember my pollster saying, we've pulled on all of these things. There was one other one, too. I forget what it was. That might have been the gun one. Was the gun safety legislation second term? Yes. Yes. Okay, so it's probably that one as well. And um, uh, they said, look, Your people— death penalty, you had undocumented immigrants for in-state Oh, tuition. the DREAM Act. Yeah, that was a toughie. Uh, public, public education was number one in the United States for five years in a row, and you right. held tuition stable for the University of Maryland for four years in a row. Yeah, so all of those things, and my pollster said, look, the gas tax, totally unpopular. Uh, the gun safety stuff is messy, and the NRA will only make it messier. Uh, so you did it as death if you weren't again. Well, what I said to him, I, I said, look, man, don't tell me where it is. I know where it is. Tell me where it's going because I believe that people move in the direction that's always forward and not back. So, in other words, don't tell me that people are, are against a particular thing. Tell me, tell me how to talk with them in a way that brings them forward. And on all of those things, I mean, the NRA, they could have petitioned a referendum, the gun safety legislation. They did not. Why did they not? Uh, I think because of the way we built a consensus in the course of tackling a tough problem. Mm -hmm. Now, if we had looked at it simply as a tough problem that couldn't be tackled, we never would have advanced the, the discourse, nor would we have built the consensus. And you might say the same thing on the DREAM Act, which was losing in the polls 55-45 and when, the, when our Republican brothers and sisters petitioned it to referendum. And then we ended up winning, I think, at the polls 58% when we had the conversation. You had presidential so, ambitions while you were pursuing these, at the time, unpopular agenda items. Yeah, I mean, that's what people say. I don't know that that's necessarily so. Uh, the, they've, some of them found me. You know, it wasn't like I said, oh, okay, gosh, this would be a perfect time to go repeal the death penalty because the it'll be popular and it'll be popular in Iowa or New Hampshire. That wasn't not, the death penalty was actually struck down by the Court of Appeals. Some of these balls come across your plate. Uh, the DREAM Act and, uh, you know, that was very much an organic kind of uh, thing that came up. I mean, uh, driver's licenses for new American immigrants. I mean, the messiness around that because of the attacks of 9-11. I mean, sometimes issues find you. Sometimes you can go and find them. When you run for office, you do run with an agenda and a plan. But sometimes the more defining moments are not the ones you bring upon yourself. They're the ones that you step up to. And I, and whenever I did that, it was, it was uh, 
it was motivated by what I felt was in the best interest of my people, not by what I thought might poll well four years from now in a presidential race. So acting upon your campaign slogan of moving Maryland forward, we're going to move forward towards the end of this podcast episode. Um, I'd like to ask you a final two-part question. Obviously, within the context of your going around uh, the United States and helping uh, Democrats get elected to offices all across the country, the question is, about your legacy and about your motivations. I'd like to ask you to speak to the people of Maryland about why it is that you first uh, forsook uh, the, uh, uh, the dance practices of your daughter, the, 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 the soccer games of your son in order to do public service, why you've been involved in public service your whole life, uh, and, you've, and you thought you might end a career, but then you moved into the presidential election uh, once you finished being governor. Why, what is your motivation, and then finally, What's your legacy? Clearly, you're not done with your career, but what would you hope your legacy would be? What did you have a long list of, of individual pieces of legislation that you got passed in the state of Maryland? Uh, that's that's a more of a legacy than, than most legislators might ever see in their life. But what would you hope that your legacy would be at the end of your term of public service? Hmm. The um, legacy. I always wrestle with this legacy thing. I think the only legacy that any of us is ever guaranteed is that uh, we were we were kind to others, that we were of service to others, that when people were suffering, we we forgot about the needs of our individual self, and that we stood up and 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 did what we could to alleviate the the suffering of others. So, uh, look, there's a lot of a lot of good in this world. Uh, there's also a lot of pain in this world. And each of us has a choice to make in life, whether we want to be part of transforming that pain, transforming that grief, transforming that loss into something more life-giving, or whether we just want to pass our time here and eventually be crushed by uh, the temporary nature of our of our mortality. I, I believe that there's a. Uh, I believe that uh, as Martin Luther King said that each of us can be great because each of us can serve, and if. Uh, if I am to have a legacy, I hope it is said of me after I'm gone that I was a good person and I did my best to serve others with honesty, with integrity, and and, and courage where necessary. And that has been Martin O'Malley, former governor of Maryland, mayor of Baltimore, council member of Baltimore, and a former Democratic candidate for president who speaks about his lifelong calling of public service as a means of being kind to others. Uh, fundamentally, existentially, Martin approaches life uh, through the lens of an individual committed to public service, through the lens of a religious person uh, aware of his own ephemerality and the importance of, while he's here, ameliorating the pain, the loss, and the grief that does afflict so many of us in society. Uh, for somebody who's achieved so much, so much more than almost any American could aspire towards, at the end of the day, the way Martin O'Malley chalks up his legacy his evaluation of what it has been to be a man uh, in this world is to have been a good person. And that's something that he reminds us each one of us can do, that each one of us can be great because each one of us has the ability to serve each other. And it doesn't have to be from the governor's mansion or the White House, but really it can just be an act of kindness uh, in Baltimore City to a neighbor who might be going through a tough time. So, Martin, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jordan. It's been a pleasure. 
This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.